Hey, so good to have you with us. Um, thank God for an extra hour uh, prior to smartphones. Uh, it would be the only thing on Facebook that only my f- uh, pastor friends would always announce. Hey, tomorrow is daylight savings, but now um, it just does it automatically. So that's a blessing, and it's so so good to have you all. We want to thank our um, youth and youth team, our college and youth. Uh, for leading us in worship today. Thank you. Let's give them a hand. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, and uh, that was such a blessing. And, uh, you know, just to worship like this, uh, you know, and just to have an extra little time, we, we're just so grateful. Today we look at a story. We're just going to jump right in to a story that we are familiar with, um, at least we know some of Abram and Lot. You know, his cha- name is not changed quite to Abraham yet. He's known as Abram. Abram and Lot, uh, they arrive at this land, and now they have a lot of riches. Um, they are very rich. Lot, uh, rich in livestock and in people and servants and um, so much that they have. And so it is in this place that they actually have a good problem. right? And th- these are problems you want where you have so much stuff, you have nowhere to store it. It's like having a closet not big enough for all the things that you have or a garage not big enough for all the cars that you have bought. It's a good problem, we would say. And it is here that Abram and Lot now uh, do something interesting. They they say, now the herdsmen are fighting over the land because they're bringing their sheep over and Lot and his men are bringing their sheep over and they're eating all the good grass first. They're drinking all the water first. And now the workers and the shepherds are fighting over the land. And there's a scene. Abram calls over Lot. And they say, look at this. They're fighting here. These these are are fighting over the water. And they're fighting over the grass. And they're fighting over the resources. What should we do? And Abram comes up with a solution. He says, you go one way and that'll be your land. I'll go the other way. That'll be my land. Very generous offer of him. And we know the story, right? That the grass looks greener on the other side. We get that phrase from this. Lot takes the side that looks better. Abram is left with a barren piece of land. It's as if you're standing here and someone is saying, do you want the house on the beach in Newport, right on the beach, or do you want to go way inland where it's hot and cheap and barren? You say, no, I want to be near the water. I want to be where it's nice. And so here in this offer, Abram gets the short end of the stick. And Lot walks away with what's best. But we see here um, a phrase that uh, is repeated twice. And we didn't read the whole chapter. uh, But we will see it here in verse 10 and verse 14. There's a little phrase here about lifting up his eyes. And you see in verse 10, Lot, when he now is deciding where to go, he And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. So he lifts up his eyes, and what he sees when he lifts up his eyes is the Jordan Valley, well watered everywhere. He describes it, it looks like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. It was like Egypt where there was plenty And you could imagine that the the livestock would flourish and they could now have all the vegetables and they could have trees and wood and resources. It was rich. And water was plenty there. 
in order to live, you need water. Water provides all that, all the resources you have. And then he looks at the other side, right? And he doesn't see it. So one thing he sees here is he sees all the material things. That same phrase now, to lift up your eyes, is this time commanded by God to Abram. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, again, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. He tells him to lift up his eyes, but he tells him to look beyond the 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 terrain, beyond the water, beyond the resources. He says, look past that. Look northward. And he is doing a full circle. He looks north, and he looks south, and he looks east, and he looks west. Basically, he is looking as far as the eye can see. He is looking beyond where his eyes can see. And he says, this is what I'm giving to you. And he follows God. He lifts up his eyes, and he has a vision for something bigger. Something bigger than what his eyes can see. We live today, often, often by just sight, what our eyes can see. What we can buy, what we could have, what we could possess, where we could live, where we can go. And we are consumed, a lot of times, let's be frank, we are just consumed with the bottom line. Uh, students in here, as you're thinking about college and you're thinking about careers, the bottom line. Oh, how much do they make? How much does an engineer make? How much does a doctor make? What kind of doctor makes more? What kind makes less? Well, that's the bottom line. That's the only thing I'm going to do. What school might help me? Well, okay, I'm just going to go. And that's all it is. It's the bottom line of the things that we can see versus the things that we cannot see. And the world around us is telling us, you got to live for the things that you can see. And so we see here today kind of two parts. Lot, we see him now living just by sight, the things he could see, the money that he could see, the job that he could see, the possessions and the things that he could see, and living for that. Versus Abram, living by faith, living, and oftentimes what looks like he's making the wrong choice or he's losing out, and yet he is the one who makes out more here. And so we see this happening here twice. So Lot walked by sight, not by faith. We're going to look at Lot for a moment. What do we learn from Lot? Uh, walking by sight leads to greed. You see here he looks uh, in verse 10 that we read. He looks at everything. And obviously he says, I'm going to pick the land that is better. And it leads to now wanting more material things. It is uh, Fred Catherwood, uh, the late English journalist who said, greed is illogical, and I love this quote, greed is a logical result of the uh, belief that there is no, no life after death. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then hold on to it hard. So if there's no life afterwards, you just go and grab what you can, however you can, and just hold on to it. Because if this is it, this is it. I remember... I was playing at some charity golf tournament. Um, uh, this is before COVID. And after the tournament, you know, they have a banquet and they had an auction and all of this. And afterwards, they said, there's a buffet. It's going to start soon. And they released us by table to go get the buffet. Well, I had some inside knowledge. One of the guys sitting next to me knew the director of the golf course. And he said, hey, you know what he told me? They didn't make that much food. There's more people here than food. He's like, 
there's going to be no seconds. That's what he told me. And I was hungry after a full day. I was like, oh, wow, that's good to know. Hey, keep it down, right? Let's go. And so the plates aren't that big. They do this on purpose. And you get the little plate. And now it's like, you know, you go to those, like, Mongolian places for five bucks, you get a bowl. You got to, like, strategically use the broccoli, like the walls, and stack the meat. No noodles. You don't have time for noodles, right? And you got to put the veggies. And you're stacking up like it's uh, Jenga or something. And you're just stacking it up. And I was stacking it up. And we've done this. And those of us who have uh, grew up with siblings, oftentimes, you know, and, hey, the food comes out. Mom brings out the food or dad brings out the, the steaks. And, oh, there's a good piece. There's a bad piece, right? And you're like, you know, Jesus' name, amen. You got to hurry up and get it. And that's the mindset that we often have. And this is what happens here. When we live by sight, we need to go and get much as we can because there is no seconds. There's nothing else. I need to go get something for myself. It is in 2 Peter 2.14, there's a little phrase here talking about those of the world. It says here, they have hearts trained in greed. They're training themselves. Gumnazo, we get the word gymnast or gymnastics or gymnasium from that word. To train, to physically work out, to prepare for something. He says the world around us is training for greed. Tell our kids, get in there first, get the best seat, get the best food. We need to get them the best teacher. We need to get the best things. We need to be first in line. We need to get them into the right classes. We need to hurry up and get to the right schools. Oh, we need to get them to the right swim classes and the right gymnastics classes, and we need to get them in. It's them first, 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 first. And we are training ourselves for this type of greed. And oh, we have to be so very careful because greed lies to us. Greed tells us the more you have, uh, have the happier you'll be. Greed tells us if you could just be self-sufficient, independent, you will be happy. No, the, the most content people in life are those who are dependent on others. And oftentimes it is with more that we have more headaches in life. And so what happens with greed, secondly, is greed prioritizes riches or things over God and others. When the Bible clearly tells us, as we as a people of God know, What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. And yet greed will tell us, hey, they can wait. They can be dropped on the priority list because if you don't hurry up and go get in this thing and you don't get it now, you'll never get it. This story here, Abram and Lot, their relationship tells us quite a bit about greed. Abram is the uncle of Lot. Lot is his nephew. And in that culture, like many of the cultures that we might have grown up in, it's a very honorific culture. The older one gets the first dibs. It would be an insult, not just to them, but to all of your family and the society around you, if the younger one took the first dibs. And we see this happening even in the New Testament, that the story of the prodigal son is that much of an insult, of a shock, because it was the youngest one that went and took the money and squandered it before the father or the older brother. And so now here, the audacity of Lot, it is unheard of. It is unheard of in our homes, probably. But here in this culture, the younger one does not go and say, Uncle, I'll take the better land. The younger one, must say to the elder, 
you pick. And I don't know if that culture today is like some of our culture, right? Asian culture, Korean culture, when you're paying for the bill. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. You know, there's like this kind of unwritten rule. You got you to offer three times, right? And then you give up on the third. Okay. Oh, okay. I can't argue anymore. I'll just let you pay for my dinner. You know, but I've tried. And the person that doesn't do that, you say, hey, guys, we only went twice. We're supposed to go three, and he's supposed to pay. And now we see here, can you imagine Abram saying, okay, maybe he meant it genuinely. And maybe he was expecting Lot to have a different answer. Lot, nephew, son, child, come here. Why don't you pick first? The right answer should have been, no, 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 uncle. Hey, uncle, no way. You pick first. But he sees Lot now lifting up his eyes, and he's looking around. And he's going, what is he doing? And then he sees, he goes, oh, look at the water. Oh, wow, that's, look at that garden. Oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. And maybe Abram and the people around are thinking, okay, well, surely, obviously, he will say, uncle, you go that way, I'll go this way. He goes, oh my gosh, look at that, it's beautiful. It's lush. Look at all the water over there. It's like the Garden of Eden from what I've heard. I'll go there, uncle. I'll go there. See you. You know, if you have a nephew, this would be a great time to say, you know, maybe your dad didn't teach you right, but, you know, it's time for me to teach you. It's time for a spanking. You know, I need to help you out. What? And he does this. He is blinded over what is important. And not only does he do this, where does he go? In the verse, last verse that we read, he ends up going near Sodom and Gomorrah. And so not only is he disrespecting his uncle, he's saying, I care more about where the property is than the person. He is saying, God, I don't care so much about being closer to you. I am going to go where there is, they are known for their evil deeds. I will go there. He prioritizes them over this way. <laughs> I shared this before, one of my childhood friends, uh, Kevin Donovan, um, we went to high school, went to college together, roomed together, you know, and by the time he had turned 31, that we had turned 31, he was diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer, and the doctor had given him a month to live. And by God's grace, I uh, was moving from one ministry to the next ministry, and I had this two-month break that I had set up. And it was on the first week of the break, and really it was God just timed it for us, where he called me on the first, it was Tuesday or Wednesday, middle of the day. He says, hey man, long time no see, and lost touch a little bit after college, and he said, I need to talk to you, because I hate to burden you like this, but he's like, yeah, I don't have much longer to live. I need to figure out how to get to heaven, and hopefully you know what you're doing. You know, and we're still friends, so we're still putting each other down a little bit, and uh you know, and he's like, hopefully, Steve, you know what you're talking about because I need some, I need to make, make sure I'm there. So I go to his house, and, you know, I spent uh, six weeks, the last six weeks of his life, teaching him the gospel, um, being optimistic and thinking and kept asking, what are you going to do? What are we going to do when you, you, we beat, beat this? And we were optimistic. And then towards the end, uh, when reality really set in, we were handwriting out his funeral service what he wanted, what he was going to do. He was a very successful guy at age 31. 
He had moved up so far in the L.A. Kings organization that I didn't know he was of that significance that at, after he had passed away, the whole team wore his initials on the helmet for the whole season. They put his face up, had a moment of silence at the game. And I was like, oh, I'm impressed, man. I didn't know he was like that. But we would have discussion. I remember one discussion that we had when we were still optimistic and saying, he's going to make it through. And I would sit there for hours with him, and I said, well, um, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? What do you want to do when you, you know, get well, when you get healthy? What should we do? And they were living in the, like, West L.A. area. And he said, you know, I, I, we were saving up for to buy a big house. And he goes, you know what? I'm, and, you know, the things that he was sharing, he was saying all the material things he no longer cared about. And it became about God and people. And he shared, he said, I, I don't really care about the house. That's not important to me. Because that's one, one thing I learned. And he talked about how he wanted to just travel with his wife and experience things with his wife. He talked about, I'm going to go to your church. I want to go and help people that are going through hardships like this. And we would have these long discussions. But I saw a shift in his life from someone who cares so much about the things of this world. And then when time was ending, and as he found faith in Christ, he said, I no longer care so much about buying a different house, wearing a certain brand. I want to now move over. I want to spend time with my loved ones. I want to go to church. I want to go and help other people. It all of a sudden shifted from things to God and people. And that's what faith does to us. And yet if we live by sight, we forget and God becomes out of focus and people become overlooked. And because we focus on the bottom line, that's it. All we care about are the things that we have and we have to be oh so very careful. You know, a few years ago, there was a daycare uh, it was in Israel, and uh, the daycare had a problem. All the, they had a, a fairly affluent families, and many of the parents kept coming late to pick up their kids, and it was an inconvenience to the teachers. They had to wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and they would come late. So they thought, well, maybe this will help, and they ended up charging a late fee. If you come late, you're going to be fined. What they thought would help them to now stop this late pickup, it doubled. Because for them, they're saying, well, we'll just pay for it, right? Uh, the money is, me making money is more important than your convenience, you getting home for dinner, you having your own life. And so they all start just paying. They would pay up front and they say, okay, yeah, we'll be an hour late now. And that's what they found out. That greed prioritizes riches over God, over others. And then it, uh, secondly is, uh, thirdly, greed leads to compromise. So we see here uh, in verse 10 that they were going towards the direction of Zoar, which is where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and he is going that way. This is the ultimate sin city, right? And he is saying, oh, well, for riches, I can go there. But what had happened is, it's interesting because the first step of compromise, a slippery slope, is he moves closer to where there is sin, further away from maybe where God is. The secondly, in 14.12, we see now that he is described, Lot is described as who was dwelling in Sodom. Now, he goes from being near Sodom and Gomorrah, now dwelling inside, and later on in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling 
in Sodom, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The people who would sit at the gate of a city were the leaders of the city. They would discuss politics at the gate of the city. And so when he now is found, he is at the gate. No longer is he living near, is he in, but he is now the leader. Because maybe the resources there were greater. Maybe the things there were so tempting. And he started compromising in his life. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't go to this city or that city. But the idea is that the moment we start thinking about greed, because our greed is insatiable. None of us ever said, oh, you know, I need to go talk to my boss. Hey, boss, you know, after COVID, I've been working at home three days a week. Gas, I don't even use gas. Can you just cut my pay? I mean, I really deserve less. No, it's unheard of, right? And if someone did, you say, oh, wow, you know, you're fired. You know, that's really odd. You know, we don't know what's going on. Uh, no one does that. No one says, oh, I've had enough. And so because greed is insatiable, it is easy for us to now go down the slippery slope in this way. We have to be also very careful to not just live for the bottom line. Moms and dads in here, uh, we have to be also very careful what we communicate to our children. If you say to your child, hey, you better study hard so you could be this, so you could make a lot of money. We have to be very careful not to say things like that. We are people of God. We are not people of this world. We don't say, oh, oh, if you don't study hard, you might have to do this kind of job. and You're, you're going to have to live in a bad neighborhood. Oh, that's bad. No. But we have to be also very careful that we don't think, oh, you know what? Until your SAT is done, and I've heard this so many times all throughout my church life, until your SATs are done, uh, no church. Does that make sense? Right? So God just got rid of the SATs, right? Praise God for that. <laughs> I mean, God just got rid of it. All right? And all of you who are sophomores and younger, you don't know the pressure of that. All right? And God just got rid of it. He said, okay, that's it. But you think about the, the, what we're saying. Hey, you know, during college, don't worry so much about church. Just you got you to do your own life. You gotta... When does it stop? What are we saying when we say all of these pleasurable, fun things are way more important than church? When this is done, maybe you can go to church. We have to be also very careful not to compromise little bits. We have to guard our hearts carefully the things that we go after. Whereas Abram walked by faith. He must have had a moment when Lot picked the fruitful, the green land, and he looks at this barren land, and God says, hey, don't look at that. Lift up your eyes. Look to the north. Look to the south. Look to the east. Look to the west. And he must have said, God, I'm going to trust you on this because it is a desert. You are saying, I'm going to be the father of all nations, of many nations. I'm going to go into the desert. I'm going to go there. And it looks like I'm going to perish. But somehow, he keeps his eyes on God, and he moves on, and it produces now in him. Right? Walking by faith produces, first of all, generosity. We see this. We see the generosity there by him offering it to his nephew. We see the generosity of 
Abram to consider someone younger and less significant in their society to have the first option. We see his generosity because the first thing that he does in the very next chapter, in chapter 14, verse 20, this is the mention of the tithe for the very first time. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, it says in the last part. This is the first time the, the tenth or a tithe is mentioned in the Bible. He is giving a tenth or a tithe when life is uncertain. I heard one pastor preaching, and I thought it was clever, at least amongst pastors in our, our kind of world. He's saying, you know, this is like someone who is, you know, the Christmas giver. They wait till the end of the year, and they see how much they have, and then they give. They're the Christmas people that give offering only at Christmas. They kind of wait till the end, make sure they have enough, and they give. He was living in uncertainty. He was living in a land that looks like it was going to be bad times. And maybe some of us are worrying today. And you're looking at the news and you're saying, oh boy, this, this economy is going to be bad. The housing market might look bad. And there's a lot of what ifs and a lot of concerns. And maybe, oh, I need to tighten down. And really, that's just a what if for us. But this is the reality for Abram. And he says, I'm going to be generous. And when we think about a tithe, now, in the New Testament church era, are we commanded to tithe? No. Right? And I hear people ask this question. I hear pastors and professors and theologians answer this. No, you're not, you know, forced to tithe. And the silent reaction often is, oh, whew, whew, man, that's that just barely over 5%. Oh, boy. Oh, good. That's good to know. My conscience is clear. But the idea is, is a generosity that's even greater. A life of generosity. A life of saying, I work hard to give. God gives me so much and I will give. And even if I am in some uncertainty, I give first. Because my eyes do not look at the things of the earth and the plants and the trees and the situation around me. My eyes are looking up. I'm still looking north, south, east, and west. God's given me everything. So it's okay. To err on the side of generosity is what we are called to do. You know, it is the, the difference between Cain's offering, Abel's offering, Cain's offering is described, um, or Abel's offering is described as the first fruits, the firstborn rather. He brings the firstborn. It's as if he wasn't sure if he was going to have enough, but he says, here's the first one. Let me just give this to God. Okay, let's see what comes next. Whereas uh, Cain is adding, collecting everything. Okay, let me see. Let me, let me calculate. Do I have enough? Okay, I, I'll give a little bit now. Okay, we have enough. This is the generosity that is mentioned here. And generosity, secondly, prioritizes others. Uh, in our life of faith, we, be, we become generous, and we become generous towards others. Um, he lets them go and take this land before him. Um, and it is in this act of love that he uh, demonstrates his faith and he is changed in this way. Uh, there's this, a memoir called Lives Other Than My Own by the French author Emmanuel Carrere. Uh, a memoir on his life and he talks about a time in his life in, 2000, uh, in late 2004. Him and his significant other, uh, it was his girlfriend at the time, they traveled uh, on a trip to Sri Lanka at the end of 2004. 
they get a hotel on top of a cliff overlooking right here under them is a beach, a beautiful beach, and they vacation there. But it is on this vacation, they both felt like we're not, and he felt like I'm not committed to her, and he was thinking about leaving her. He wasn't sure about her. They had discussed it several times, but they decided, let's just enjoy this. On their trip, while they are there, they meet a couple other, they meet another family who is on vacation. Um, uh, Delpine and Jerome. They have a little daughter, and they came with the grandparents. And so they kind of met them, and they spoke the same language, and they enjoyed their company. Well, 2004 at the end, that's when the great tsunami hit from the Indian Ocean. And what had happened is he witnessed a tragedy. For some reason, he was up on his hotel, which was high up, and they were fine. Um, Delpine and Jerome were also away from the water, so they were okay. But their little daughter, uh, Juliet, was playing at the beach with her grandfather when the tsunami hit. Swept her away. The grandfather tried his best, uh, almost risking his own life, trying to save her, and they lose her. And so in his story, he talks about now witnessing this couple, witnessing the mother going in and out of consciousness after hearing about what had happened to her daughter. But one thing that he's noticed um, was the husband doing all that he can to care for her. He was acting like everything was normal, bringing food and telling her, let's go do this, let's go. He was trying everything in his power to now save her life. It looked like she was going to go too after losing her daughter. And there was something beautiful and magical about him, Emmanuel Carrero, witnessing this. And he changes his mind. He sees love. He sees someone that puts the other person first. And he decides. He, has a, he says, I'm going to commit myself to Helene. And he now falls in love with, by act of volition. You see, it is easy for us to live as if what matters is just me and myself. It is easy for us to be greedy for myself and to forget the other person. Well, we don't. Married couples sometimes do this, you know, we, we, we keep tally or we keep a scoreboard on who did what and who spent what and you were out with the gals and I was out with the guys and uh, who watched the kids and uh, eventually it goes away. We are called to be people who are uh, generous, prioritizing others in this way and we are called to be generous and value God. Third, uh, thirdly, the generous, they value God. Uh, when you think about uh, how we value God, um, there's a difference between just um, trusting God or fearing God. I think valuing God. We say God is more important. And that is why Abram's eyes were lifted up and he looked at something beyond. And he valued God and what mattered there. You see here, the story that we read, it starts with him calling out the name of the Lord. Verse 3, it says that he, go, verse 4 rather, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. It starts with him worshiping God, and then the story ends in verse 18 with him creating an altar in his new home, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He valued God. 
And what mattered to him now was where God is, is what defined success for him. This idea of an altar is mentioned throughout, uh, where sacrifices are given to God, where God is present. And the writer of Hebrews in 13.10 talks about an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. There's a place. This is now where Christ is. And Christ is with us. We, you are the people of God. And we as the people of God, we define our success and where we are going in the will of God by where Christ is. And so if I am poor on this earth, but I am with Christ, that is his will. If I go to a barren land, but I am with Christ, I will still call out to him. Abram called out to God when things were good, when he was rich, and he calls out to God at the end when he had lost his land, and he had lost Lot in this way. And he seeks him out. Christ is with us. And we seek him out. And he is the one that we live for in this way. And so with that, I want to close us in prayer. If I, would, if I could ask you to bow your heads, let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that we could lift up our eyes to where you point to. Way much more than what we can see. Lord, many of us, uh, we confess that we are walking around with our heads down, looking at where we're going to get our next meal where we can get just a little bit more and we forget to lift up our eyes to you. So, Lord, we come today. So, Lord, for our young people here today, uh, Lord, would you help them to pause in the middle of tests and school and, and all that they're going through to look to you, to take their faith seriously in their teen years. Would you be with us? That as life has settled in, Lord God, that we would continually look to you, that a loss here on earth with you is, is still a win. So we keep our eyes on you. We look to you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.